Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever love, loves God must also love his brother. The grass withers and the flowers fade. So 1 John 4, if you're not already there, let me add uh, my welcome uh, to Christ the King. If you're new, if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. Um, and also just a reminder, I'm not sure if Terry said this or not, but we will be gathering next Sunday on Christmas Day, so please be here um, for that. Santa will be here. I'm just kidding. He won't. Um, anyways, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would uh, be with us continually. God, I pray that you would uh, give us understanding of your word this morning, Um, help those things that might be distracting us this week um, to be put aside for now, God. I pray that you would uh, enter into our hearts and our minds, that you would um, allow us to behold wonderful and magnificent things from your word this morning. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So I am probably way more critical of the American church than I should be. Um, but it's the, it's the context in which I live and breathe, not only as a Christian, but, uh, but especially as a pastor. So I get to see the, the ins and outs of the church, and uh, not just our church, but churches across the world as well. 
But one thing that I've noticed, which typically takes place during an election year, um, is how unthoughtful and short-sighted Christians can sometimes be. So one example is simply because when a political candidate says something even remotely Christian, and we all know why they're saying something Christian is so they can get votes, he or she becomes a, a sort of a prophet in the church. And we begin to listen to whatever they have to say. Well, along these same lines, the uh, editor of the Gospel Coalition, Colin Hansen, said this in an interview with ABC News a couple of years ago on this same topic. He says, we're ignoring the corruption inside the church, the moral corruption, the theological corruption, because we're trying to protect the church against what we see as these outside threats, whether it be the gay rights lobby or abortion rights or Muslim refugees or illegal immigrants. Meanwhile, the compromises being made on the inside of the church have the possibility of truly destroying the credibility of American Christian witness. And in a sense, this is what John is wanting to communicate to his readers. He recognizes that while they are being attacked from the outside, uh, what's most important, John is trying to say, is what, what is happening on the inside of the church. Because if we lose what's happening on the inside, assuming that's, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is at work, we lose everything. So our credibility is lost, our witness is ruined, and then we become what Paul says, uh, we become uh, clanging cymbals and loud gongs. Nobody's listening or wants to listen. So we can't lose sight of this. Now, this question of truth uh, is one that has been around for, for a long time, centuries even. Pontius Pilate asked it of Jesus in John 18 when Jesus says to him, before he's about to be crucified, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, to which Pilate retorted, what is truth? And while this question has been asked and debated and continues to be asked and debated in the culture, which is to be expected, uh, it's also something that is asked and debated within the church. So, so you might be asking, how do we know that what we believe is true? Or, or, or shouldn't we flex some on the gospel or be flexible on the gospel in order to be more inclusive, to make things a bit more palatable for the, for the broader culture so that more people will come into the church? Shouldn't we do that? Well, this in part is what John is dealing with when he asks the question, what's, what's the difference between a true spirit and a false spirit? And the way he defines it is this. He says, a true spirit is one who believes Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. A false spirit doesn't believe Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Pretty easy. True, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. False, doesn't believe that. So it's a pretty simple test, but, but this is the, the key theological issue of John's letter here. Because it's the very crux of Christianity and what we spend a lot of time remembering during the Advent season right now. It's the incarnation. Because to rid ourselves of the incarnation as the church is to hollow out our Christian faith 
to the point that it eventually rots and crumbles like a pumpkin a week after Halloween. So John helps us to avoid this by calling out what he sees to be wrong. And I love this about John because John doesn't beat around the bush. John doesn't doesn't, uh, mince words because he recognizes what's at stake if the church loses this key doctrine. So this is another thread that we've seen throughout the letter. John says in chapter 2, verse 22, uh, if one denies the Son, they deny the Father as well. And then now in chapter 4, John says, denial of the Son indicates whether we are inspired by the Spirit or not. So, so to deny the Son, to deny the Incarnation, is not just denying uh, that, that, you, you know, that, that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. It is denying the Trinity altogether. So acceptance or denial of the Son is a test of whether or not someone is a Christian. And this was a vital test, especially for John's readers, since those that were teaching falsely were those that sought to separate Jesus the man from Jesus the God-man. So this morning, I want us to look at three tests, because I think the whole of chapter 4 is, 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 you can look at it as kind of one big test that John is giving to his readers. So I want to look at, split it up into three tests that John offers us here in the text to know uh, that we truly believe. So these are found on the back of your worship guide there, if you picked one up as you came in. But the, the first test is the test of orthodoxy. The second test is the test of orthopraxy. And then the third test is the, the test of orthocardia. So I'll explain all of those words here in just a minute. If you're like, what is he talking about? We'll explain all of them here in just a minute. So the first test in verses 1 through 6 is the test of orthodoxy. Let me read those verses for us again. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So before moving forward, let me give you some background info that I think is is really helpful to understanding what John is getting at in our text. Because during during the time that John is writing this letter, uh, house churches, so smaller gatherings in people's homes, uh, were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So they didn't have like one central church building where they all went that was on the street corner and everybody went there on a Sunday. They were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And unlike today... These churches had very few kind of formal creeds to give them doctrinal guidance, to to know what to believe and what not to believe. The scriptures were not readily available to them. They didn't have copies of the Bible that they could order off Amazon and and get in a couple of days. Uh, And no one at this time owned a New Testament. So at, at best, these early Christians had random collection of letters 
from, from apostles that had been copied down and, and passed around, and collections of stories about Jesus. So during this time, oral communication was essential. But as you know, if you've ever played the telephone game, um, a telephone is this thing you used to call people on them. Um, but if you've ever played that game, you know how, how unreliable sometimes oral communication can be. So needless to say, this comes with all sorts of problems when, when prophets and teachers arrived in your city claiming to have authority that they did not have. And so they're using spiritual language and, and saying things that, that kind of sound true and they, they kind of sound like what John was saying to us and they kind of sound like something that we read that Jesus did. And we still have this problem happening today. And, and we have Bibles. We have creeds. We have confessions. We have catechisms. And it still creeps into the church today and affects it greatly. So you can imagine how difficult it must have been for the early Christians. So throughout the New Testament, the subject of unauthorized teachers uh, was constantly being addressed. Paul did this in his letters. False teachers and even false letters were, were, were so prevalent that Paul says in a couple of his letters that he had to sign his letters with recognizable markings to distinguish them from false teachers and false prophets. So this meant that churches could and did fall prey to bad teaching. And John's readers were no exception here. So the fact that the command in verse 1, do not believe every spirit, is written in present tense, suggests that even John's readers were accepting, without discernment, without testing, all teaching that claimed to be inspired. So if it sounded kind of familiar they were willing to receive it within the church. And this is what he tells his readers not to do in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't do that. Why? Because everything that appears to be spiritual or appears to be Christian is not necessarily spiritual or Christian, and it's definitely not necessarily going to be helpful or even true. So just because someone says something in a Christian way, using Christian language, or from a pulpit, doesn't necessarily mean that it's Christian. So John tells him in the rest of verse 1 to be discerning. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John recognizes, he knows there's false prophets that have gone out into the world. And so he says, whenever you get, some, get a word from one of these prophets, you need to test it. So the way you know it's from God is by doing so. So this isn't being judgmental. This isn't being uh, nitpicky. This is being wise as Christians. Which means we have to have some criteria in which to test and the boldness to call it out when that's needed. One commentator made this observation. Our society, quote, our society prizes religious tolerance and pluralism to such a degree that many of us have begun to believe that such testing betrays narrowness of vision that is overly critical and even judgmental. 
That is not the case. You have every right as a believer to discern whatever it is that is coming to you. Even the words that I am speaking this morning. You should be, as, as we see in Acts, the Bereans who went back and looked at their own uh, copies of what they had of the scriptures and they uh, tested what the Apostle Paul was saying to them to see whether or not it was true. You should be doing the same thing. Not just with me, but with other people as well. So it, it's become increasingly popular in our culture to say, well, if you do that, you're being judgy or um, you're being kind of elitist and saying that your theology is better or your teaching is better and, and therefore this nobody else's teaching is, 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 is better or is as good. And that's just not the case. To, to, to bend on certain truths, to, to compromise certain biblical values, uh, all in the name of tolerance, relevance, and a false sense of acceptance by the world is not biblical Christianity. So I would encourage you to be wary of anyone or any church who doesn't seek to thread the gospel narrative through everything they say and do. Or to say it another way, uh, uh, who, who don't make the person and work of Christ the central unifying theme of their life together. So we should be filtering everything through uh, an incarnational theology, we could say. Because if someone believes that God came in the flesh, that he became Emmanuel, just like we sang this morning, God with us, that should radically change everything about that person and that church. And, this, and if this is not true of them or the church in which they are at, we have every right to be suspicious and even to confront it at times. So false prophets and false teachers are both a reality outside the church. We can probably name them pretty clearly, but they are also a reality inside the church. And this is what John is getting at. Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So just as a side note, and <clears throat> in, in just kind of going back to what Jesus is saying here, while we recognize this isn't always foolproof, this is one of the major reasons that we have an extensive membership process at Christ the King Church. I know sometimes people come in and say, wow, I've never had to do that before. Usually it was just, we just came down the aisle and you said, I want to be a member, and then you were, boom, a member on the spot. That's not how we do it here. So we have a CTK 101 class that's coming up on January 22nd where you sit to learn about who we are as a church. Uh, there's an applica- a short application that you have to fill out so that we can kind of get to know you better. There's a member interview that you sit down with a couple of the elders who interview you. Um, and then there's a congregational vote where we bring you before the, where we bring your names before the congregation, uh, and then we vote on you. And so this is a pretty extensive process, but, but we believe that in, in some way this helps to protect the flock from wolves. It, it essentially, because it essentially invites people to be assessed, to be tested, and it gives us the freedom to call out something we see as wrong or dangerous to that particular individual. We want to care for them as well, but also to the church at large. So back to the text. 
In verses 2 and 3, John tells us that the criteria in which this test is administered uh, is through the lens of the incarnation. So a really simple test, and I love that just John's just simplicity in this. If the spirit you are testing confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, it is from God. If it does not, it's not from God. Simple. It, it, so, so an attack on the incarnation is, is nothing new. It's, it's continuing to happen even to this day because to disprove or explain it away would be a great triumph. So this is why we have different creeds and confessions, not to add to the, to the scriptures, but to clarify what the scriptures teach and what the church has always believed and taught. So one commentator said, each generation must forge its beliefs, anchored to the doctrines laid out in the scriptures with an eye on the contemporary challenges the church must confront. So, so what they're saying there is that we are, we are continuing to teach the same doctrine that has always been true in the scriptures, and we're taking the same doctrine and confronting the culture with it. We're not conforming to the culture. We're confronting it with the same truths that have always been true and have always been taught. So we're not changing them around so that, so that more people can feel good about themselves and come here. We're, we're confronting the culture with that. This is, this is how the Apostles' Creed uh, came to be, because the incarnation of Christ mainly was being attacked. So the next time we say the Apostles' Creed, you'll notice that the, that the part about, the, uh, about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are very short, but the, the part about Jesus the Son is, is pretty long in the Creed. It takes up most of the Creed, 90% of it. And the reason why that creed was, was written was to help others understand that these are the things that we believe to be true about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is why we have catechisms, so that we understand theologically and biblically what it is that we believe. For instance, so we're using the New City Catechism, which is just a collection of the Westminster Shorter Catechism and the Heidelberg Catechism, and just kind of updated it a little bit. But question 22 of the New City Catechism Ask the question, why must the, the Redeemer be truly human? The answer, that in human nature, he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. And this is where these false prophets, in John's day and in our day, have gone awry. And this is primarily what John has been concerned with in chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of his letter. So here in verses 2 and 3, he brings the hammer down again with, with full clarity that if one does not believe in the incarnation of God, uh, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, they are not from God. No exceptions. So their prophecies are false. Whatever comes out of their mouth is false and their religion is hollow. So why is all of this important? And then what do we lose if we lose the incarnation? So the first thing we lose is we lose its salvific nature. So if we lose the incarnation, we lose the second Adam. We lose Jesus, who is the only one who could and does, like I said earlier in the service, Fulfill the law perfectly through his perfect obedience. So then we lose our substitute sacrifice. We, we lose 
our one mediator between humanity and God, leaving us dependent upon ourselves to make our own way and to forge our own path. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a poor Savior. And it's foolishness on our part to think that any of us could could stand before God, and mainly foolishness and pride on our part, that we could stand before God and make a case for our goodness. But that is exactly what we communicate when we throw out the incarnation. We say, we don't need a Savior. I'm my Savior. I do it. So the next thing that we lose, so we lose the salvific nature, the next thing that we lose is the its empirical nature or its experiential nature. So throughout the Christian life, uh, the author of Hebrews says, we are to run the race set before us, looking to Jesus as the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That's the Christian life. That's who we're looking for. So apart from the incarnation, we don't have Jesus as this pattern for our life. We can't look at Jesus if we don't believe in the incarnation. We can't just look at a good man and then just model. I mean, we could do that. We could model our life after that. But that's not what the gospel teaches. So because, because his, Jesus' redeemed, resurrected body is also a pattern for our future redeemed resurrected bodies. That's why Paul says if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, we are, we are the most to be pitied as Christians because this is not coming for us. So this I know at least if, if, if Jesus' body was redeemed and resurrected and ours will be the, the same, I know this should be at least a great encouragement to some of you who are currently suffering because when you're suffering, you're feeling the brokenness of creation firsthand. So to disbelieve in the incarnation is to lose a high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses only because he experienced personally every suffering and every temptation that we, that we experience. And so for this reason, Jesus is able to, to comfort the suffer, sufferer perfectly and he's, he's able to help the tempted precisely because of that. And all of this would be lost if the incarnation is discarded. So the test of orthodoxy is, as John says in verse 6, we are from God. <clears throat> this is what John says about uh, himself and those who are with him. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of er error. So when John says we are from God, whoever knows God listens to us, that does sound a little arrogant, does it not? It does sound a little arrogant, but this is, this is not John being arrogant and saying, look, look at me. I hold the keys to right doctrine. I can tell you what is good and what is bad and who is in and who is out, who's popular, who's not, and do all this thing. Not at all. This is not what John is doing at all. Rather, these are the confident words of someone who was an eyewitness to the person and work of Jesus. In his own gospel, in the gospel of John, John calls himself five times the disciple of whom Jesus loved. 
And not because he thought he was the most loved disciple or the favorite disciple, but because he understood that his most important identity wasn't wrapped up in his name, but by being loved by Jesus, the Son of God. And that's why he could say over and over again, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. That became his identity. And so this disciple whom Jesus loved saw and experienced the incarnation firsthand. I mean, he was there at the cross when, when Jesus says, uh, "Here, she, my mother is now your, take care of my mom. He was there. He experienced every part of Jesus' life in that way. And can write these words in a hostile culture. I mean, a Roman culture where he would be killed for his faith. He writes these words in this hostile culture without hesitation. He is going against the grain of everything in this society. So the question you have to ask yourself this morning is, do you believe in the incarnation or not? Do you believe that Jesus came in the flesh? That God put on skin and came to earth? You have to answer that question. This is, this is the vital question you have to ask yourself. So that's the first test, the test of orthodoxy. The second test we find in our, our text is the test of orthopraxy in verses 7 through 12. Look there with me again. John says, Beloved, let us, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So the word orthopraxy is an uncommon word, but it basically means living out what you believe. Living out what you believe, and you're probably like, why didn't you just say that and not use that word? But the, the outline would have been messed up if I did that, so I'm just being honest. But orthodoxy is to be, to be complemented by orthopraxy, okay? They go together. So the orthodoxy that we affirm, the teaching that we affirm, specifically here from the text, is the incarnation of the Son of God, and therefore the, the orthopraxy would be shaping our life around the incarnation of the Son of God. So we'll get to how that plays out in a second, but, but first let me, let me quote the late theologian J.I. Packer who said in an article that he wrote it, entitled The Vital Question, he says this, quote, What the doctrine of the incarnation says is that the triune God loves sinners. And therefore, in unity with God the Father and God the Spirit, God the Son has come to us where we are and identified, uh, and identified wholly with the human condition in order to save us. So this is what John is saying here in verses 7 through 12. The incarnation of Christ is the Trinitarian manifestation of God's love for you. And John is saying to his readers in these verses that upon receiving this manifestation of God's love, it now changes how you live. 
to verse 10 shows us the seriousness of God's commitment to love us. In this is love. <clears throat> not, that we, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Jesus, God's only son, is the one who appeases God's wrath toward us. And this, John says, is love. In fact, it is the ultimate display of love. It, is, it, this, it doesn't get any better than this. Your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents, they, they can't love you in the way that God loves you fully. They can't do it. They can give you a, a peek into that reality. That's about it. But there is no other love that compares. And then in verse 11 he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, in this way, then we also ought to love one another. So this love that we are, we are to offer cannot be offered in any genuine way unless it is empowered by an experience of being loved by God in this way. So God's love has to come first. He had to make the first move toward us. It's not us making the move toward him, which then enables us to offer this same love to each other. And then John says, to love in this way is to prove that we have eternal life working in us. And this is the second test that builds on the first, to which both are built on our third that is found in verses 13 through 21. The test of orthocardia. So let me read those verses for us, 13 through 21. John says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar." For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So I'm sure for many of you, orthocardia is a new word, uh, which simply put means having the right heart. So orthodoxy is the right doctrine or the right teaching. Orthopraxy is the right Living orthocardia is the right heart. It's loving rightly and it's desiring rightly. And often this, this gets ignored because of how loudly we, we proclaim the first two. And I know I'm guilty of that often is, is knowing and, and living, knowing and living. But we have to recognize again that each one of these builds on the other. All three work in conjunction with the other to produce true faith. So to only have knowledge, to only have right belief and to understand all the right things 
without right living, without orthopraxy, is not true Christianity. And to have right living without right belief is to be driven by the wind and whims of this world. So whatever sounds good, I'll do it. So whatever whatever kind of comes my way that makes me feel good or whatever the song that might be or, or teacher or teaching that might be, that is what I'm going to do. I don't need to have all of this knowledge or know deep theology or read books. It's just me and Jesus, and that's how I'm going to live my life. But to have right belief and right living without a right heart is again, like Paul says, to be a clanging cymbal and loud gong. You probably know these people who are like, and they tend to be Calvinists. I don't know why, but, and I can, I can hate on Calvinists here because I am one, but they tend to be these, these, these folks who are like overbearing and, and you have to believe certain things and you have to read all of uh, the institutes and you have to do all of these certain things or else you're not a true believer. And they are just a loud gong. They're a clanging symbol. You don't want to listen to anything they have to say, even though it might be good. But to not have a true heart, not to not have the right heart, is to be a Pharisee in the truest sense. Someone who knows all the rules, they know how to apply the, these rules, but does it for all the wrong reasons, which mostly is to be seen by others or to think, wow, that person is so smart, they know everything, everything to do, or, it, or they sometimes use it to, to earn a right standing before God, which we know cannot be done on our own. So the test of orthocardia is a test of what theologians have called uh, a regeneration of your heart. The actual ongoing work of the gospel in your heart. Inner transformation is what that is. As one writer said, a rightly ordered heart is required for inner transformation. Without it, both our orthodoxy and orthopraxy will be distorted. So wherever your heart is pointed, whatever your heart is drawn to, affects the other dimensions of your spirituality. It affects your beliefs and it affects your living. So just think, ask yourself this question right now. Where is your heart pointed what is what is grabbing your heart at this very moment is it towards a person is it is it towards uh, a job or, or or money or or possessions is it towards something you're hoping for maybe something you're hoping for for christmas maybe maybe that's it maybe your heart is grabbed by those things and then being honest with yourself and saying this yes this has grabbed my heart i'm repenting of that today but then just, then just kind of evaluate it through that framework. How has it made you live? It, I'm just assuming that it's not Jesus that's grabbing your heart at this moment, but how has it made you live? What has it made you do? What has it made you say? Because whatever your heart is pointed to is going to affect every other dimension of your spirituality. It's going to change you. So John gives us a test in these, in these final verses of chapter 4 and, and all of this test has to do with is love. So if you were to Google the word love, you will get around 16 billion hits. 16 billion hits. So it is a popular topic that is filled with all sorts of meaning and understanding. So think of the first time you told your spouse, your now spouse, that you loved them. That was a big deal. 
the big deal, a big milestone in your relationship, you probably would say. Or even the, the scientific fact that our children need to hear the words, I love you, from their parents. And if they don't, the relationship is diminished in some way. So we even say as the church that we, that we love each other, but, but, but do we actually know what that means to love each other? Does anybody? I mean, even in the Bible, the meaning of the word is, is complex given the amount of times the word is used in its different forms. There are different Greek words for the word love. So uh, phileo is one uh, Greek word that, that is used, um, and it's a, brother, a brotherly or sisterly love. So if you, you know the city of Philadelphia, so the city of brotherly love. Uh, then you have the, the, the word for love, uh, storge, is, means a natural affection or natural obligation towards someone or something. These are two Greek words that are used in the Bible uh, for love. But in these verses that we're reading today, John is not using either of those words. He's not using phileo. He's not using storge. He chooses instead to use the Greek word agape. And just to read you a, t- a definition, uh, which, is, which is called out of, agape is called out of one's heart by the preciousness of the object love. It is a love of esteem, of evaluation. It has the idea of prizing. It is the noblest word for love in the Greek language. This love keeps on loving even when the loved one, this is good, the, this love keeps on loving even when the loved one is unresponsive, unkind, unlovable, and unworthy. It is unconditional love. And this is the love, this agape love is the kind of love God calls us to here in these verses. It's this love that we have received from God, this agape love, that is to reorder all of our other loves. You heard it in the reading over and over in chapter 4, 25 times. John uses the word love, agape, in these verses, and obviously has kept this theme of love woven into his entire letter. Why? Because he knows that this is what the church needs to hear the most. That, that God has loved you in this way, or loves you in this way, this agape love, this self-giving love of God in Christ. And the way he communicates that most clearly in our chapter is in verse 16, when he says for the second time in chapter 4, God is love, or God is Agape. Three orders that reorder all other loves or ideas about love that you came through the door with today. Because you remember, I said this a couple of weeks ago, love is not just one of God's many activities. It's not like he loves, he has fun, you know, he's joyful, or, or you know, all of those attributes that we want to list out. It is the essence of who he is. That's why God, John says God is love, which means if it is the essence of who he is, it means that all of his activity, all of his activity, all of his, his sovereign workings in this world, his the sovereign workings in your life are all activities of love. So every movement that he makes is driven by 
self-sacrificial, unconditional love. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you in that particular way? Because I ask that because this is an easy truth to accept when things are going our way. It's a really easy truth to say, to use the church calendar a bit, to in, in Advent. Because it seems like everybody is, is happy and joyous and has ugly Christmas decorations in their front yard and they're singing Christmas carols wherever you go. And it's really easy to, to, to believe that when it's, it's a time like this. But, but, but the minute things go sideways, let's just say uh, Good Friday, when Jesus has to go to the cross, that's the minute we begin to doubt God's love for us. We saw that and we see that in the disciples in the passion story. That's when they start to run away from Jesus. But in reality, the truth, God's love hasn't changed for you in those situations, but your confidence in God's love has. That's really what it comes down to. So we have to recognize that God is not some wayward father. He, he's not some passive husband. He is fully engaged in your good. And that's what it means when we say God is love. So we also, on top of all that, we also have to be careful to recognize that, that when we read the words God is love, that we don't get dyslexic here and reverse those words. I'm dyslexic, I can say that. Um, we cannot say, as some have tried to say, Love is God. As if any manifestation of love or display of love suddenly qualifies as divine. So this would be like saying because a dog has four legs, every animal with four legs is a dog, which we would all say is ridiculous and obviously not true. But the same is true for God's love. Because God's love is unique in the sheer fact that he embodies it. It's who he is. So what this means is that orthocardia is an altogether different thing because its origin and its manifestation is found in God and how he makes it known to us in Christ, his son. And it's this love that the false teachers in John's uh, in John's day, this is the love they don't understand. Because it's this love that changes our orthodoxy. It changes how we believe. It changes our orthopraxy. It changes how we live, how we behave. Because this love is what changes, what regenerates that which directs both of these things. Because it changes your heart. You see, you can gain lots of knowledge even about the Bible, and still not believe. I know, I know of many Bible scholars in the world, uh, men and women much smarter than I am, uh, who are not Christians. But they know way more about the Bible than all of us combined. You can even do what, what the Bible says to do and still not believe. The rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10 is a perfect example of this. When he comes to Jesus and he wants to know how does he have eternal life, and Jesus questions him on these different things, and, and he confesses to Jesus, I have kept all the commandments since I was a child. I have done all the right things. I have checked all of the boxes, 
And yet, when he's pushed a little further by Jesus, he still walks away from Jesus downtrodden, depressed, because his heart was already given over to his wealth. Because you see, a change of the heart is different because you can't change it yourself by what you know and what you do. Heart change happens only by someone from the outside. Only a supernatural intervention can change your heart. So in the incarnation of God, in Christ, is how this happens. God's love for us in Christ. It it is God's love for us that marks Christianity as something definitively different from all other religions of the world. There is no other religion that sent its top guy down to die for the human race. No other religion teaches that except Christianity. So it's definitively different in that way. And the incarnation is the very crux of our faith because it is the true tell of God himself entering into the fray, becoming one of us, asserting himself into the brokenness of his own creation to begin the work of renewal in our hearts. So let us not lose sight of this. That not only are we a people created in the image of God, but people, by his Spirit, where the God of creation dwells. That we are people of the incarnation, and this reality enables us to believe rightly and to walk rightly in this world. Amen. Let's pray. God, help us to be a people who not only believe rightly, behave rightly, that we would be a people who have hearts that are right, that we would be a people who have uh, hearts that have been transformed by um, you, by, by you sending Jesus into this world, into the fray of this world, into the brokenness of the world to save us, to renew our hearts, to regenerate our hearts. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people uh, that, that lived with changed hearts, these, these hearts of flesh that you have given to us, these soft hearts that now are able by your Spirit to love as you have loved us. And I pray that we would be a church known for that, that we would be a church known um, because we have been changed by your love and that we're able to take that love and, and do it to others. So God, would you continue to do that work in our midst? God, I pray for those in, in, this, uh, in this room who may not yet know that love uh, from you. And I pray that they would experience that today, that their heart would be softened to the gospel. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.